Welcome to the Awake Podcast. I'm Noelle Yates, and I'm so excited that you are listening in today. I have been traveling a lot the past month. In fact, the other day, I figured up that I had gone to the West Coast from the East Coast three times in 12 days. And I don't know about you, um, but that's a lot of travel for me. So that's the excuse I'm going to use for the story that I'm about to tell. So it was on one of those trips recently. I was coming home from Denver and it was an early morning flight. I was tired, jet lagged. There was a time difference and I was trying to catch my flight. I checked in at the airport and proceeded to security only to find the longest security line I think I've ever been in. I must have waited in that line 45 minutes, maybe an hour, to the point that I thought I was going to miss my flight. So by the time I got up to the front of the line, I was worn out. And I threw my bag up on um, you know, the conveyor belt through the security. I went through the security scanner. Everything was fine. And I waited on the other side for my bag. And all of a sudden, I noticed that the line had kind of completely stopped. No bags were coming out. And I look up to see about three TSA agents all gathered around the same screen, um, pointing at the screen. And I realize they're pointing at the contents of my bag. And that's my bag they're looking at. And I thought, oh, man, what did I leave in my bag? Did I forget some liquids in the rush of like packing that morning? Did I just forget some stuff in there? So sure enough, the TSA agent comes over and he says, ma'am, we're going to need to take you over to the side and look through your bag. No big deal. I mean, this has happened to me before. If you travel a lot, it happens. And it wouldn't have been a big deal if I'd have just kept my mouth shut. But instead, the following words proceeded out of my mouth. And I said, sure, that's fine, but it might explode. Yes, I used the word explode at security in front of a TSA agent. And not only did I say the word, I said it loud enough for everyone around me to hear. The TSA agent simply looked back at me and said, shh. And as soon as he did that, I realized what I had done and I turned into a crazy woman. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I really, I just meant that I had shoved my clothes in and that they were just gonna come flying out. Of course, I'm only making the situation worse. So the guy proceeds to take me over to the side, pulls my suitcase up. Now keep in mind, I'm the lady that just told him my suitcase might explode. And then he asks me, ma'am, do you know that there's a bullet casing in your suitcase? I was like, what? What are you talking about? I said, how did that get in there? And he looked right back at me and said, I don't know. You tell me very suspicious. Like at this point, I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking I'm going to have to call my husband. I'm going to be stuck in Denver. I am not getting out of here. He opens my suitcase and he starts feeling around and it's like he knows exactly where to go. And he feels around and hits my jewelry pouch. And when he does, he opens it up and he pulls out this necklace. And as soon as he pulls it out, it hits me that this is a necklace I had just bought weeks before from a little local store where I'm from. It was, it was a handmade necklace by, a, I think, maybe a local designer. And sure enough, at the bottom of that necklace that attached the little tassel that was hanging off of the necklace, it was attached with a bullet casing. I had never even noticed it before. I just thought it was a pretty necklace, had no idea. But as soon as he pointed it out, I realized that he was right. Long story short, obviously I did make it out of that security finally. 
But thinking about that story made me think about my recent trip to Thailand. Because most people think about Thailand as this beautiful place to vacation. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's called the land of a thousand smiles. And there's beaches and blue water. It's really a tropical paradise for most people. And most people don't really look any further than that. But in reality, it's held together by something more dangerous, just like that necklace. It's held together by something more dark and maybe even more sinister. And you don't have to look very hard to find it. You see, it all started in Patia during the Vietnam War. And Patia was once this quiet little fishing village, but all of that changed overnight when soldiers from the war started coming to Patia for their R&R. And you fast forward about 40 years, and what was once this quiet little village has now become the heart of the sex industry in Thailand. And it's estimated that 9.4 million Western men come to Thailand every year for sex. And at the heart of the red light district in Patia is a place called Walking Street. And I have to admit that Walking Street just assaulted all of my senses. I was so overcome. I was overcome by the masses of people and the tourists, the customers, the sex workers of every kind. And then mixed in was bright lights and street performers like magicians and acrobats and food vendors. There was Lady Gaga music just blaring in the background. And I know it sounds bizarre, but in some ways I felt like I was at some kind of theme park or even some kind of beach destination. There were so many people and then right in the middle of the people are families like pushing their children in strollers. At one end of the street was an H&M clothing store and a Ripley's, believe it or not, and seeing those things, you know, felt strangely normal. But there was one important distinction and that was that everywhere I turned, there was women and girls and men and even boys selling their bodies to eager customers. And then mixed in with that were these people like shoving papers in your face, listing all of the services that could be offered. See, Thailand is a major hub for victims of the sex industry. Um, some come from the rural, impoverished areas of the country, and some come from other nations. And culturally in Thailand, it's the responsibility of the women to provide for their families. And their, the daughters really bear this burden. So they, they go to that big city hoping to find work. They quickly find themselves there <clears throat> having a hard time getting a job because they have no skills, they have no place to stay, and so the bars offer them a place to stay. So it's very tempting, and so they start as a cashier, and one thing leads to another, and before they know it, they are trapped in the sex industry. Patia alone is home to at least 30,000 to 50,000 sex workers, just in that one city. In Bangkok, the numbers are even more staggering. In just one small area of Bangkok, there are as many as 10,000 sex workers trying to earn a living. Obvious duties in these bars include, you know, serving drinks and dancing, but the job extends far beyond that. It was sobering to walk through Nana Plaza, which is the hub of the red light district in Bangkok, and see the sign that has appropriately and proudly named this place the world's largest adult playground. 
It was in one of these bars that I met a girl named Suda. She's 20 years old and she's been working at the bar for about three months. She had a job outside of the bar as a legitimate waitress in an Italian restaurant, but she was recently kicked out with no place to go and no place to work. And not only did she lose her work, but she lost her housing. So she was lured to the bar simply to have a place to sleep. And this can be hard to pass up when you're homeless and trying to send home as much money as possible. In order to even talk to Suda, the bar required us to order her some drinks, and while most customers would have offered the girls alcohol, we simply ordered her a Coke and told her we just wanted to talk. She was so young and timid and reluctant at first to talk to us, um, but I could tell after a few minutes uh, she started to feel safe. She started to feel more comfortable, and we learned more about her and our partner was able to tell her about an opportunity for her to come and learn English and even go to school and a safe place for her to live. You could almost tell that it sounded too good to be true for her. She was a little skeptical. But after talking a few more minutes, she was interested and they agreed to come back at another time and show her the school and the home. And it was so hard to walk away knowing that we were leaving her in the, the same lifestyle that we had found her. And I had to realize that this is a long and complicated process. Change in this situation does not come overnight, but a foundation has been laid, a, a second chance had been offered. And I caught a glimpse kind of in real time of how this work is done on the ground. And I had to stop and remember that it's not my job to save the world. God is in control, and we have to allow him to change these girls from the inside out. These girls are constantly at risk of disease, of being exploited, being abused, uh, drug dependency, malnutrition, emotional trauma. The majority are going to remain uneducated with really no opportunity for a better life and most are taught to believe that there is no other way that they can provide for their families than to continue in the sex trade. It's really seen as both their duty and their destiny. And I really believe that these young girls are among the most vulnerable and exploited people on the face of the earth. Women here who have a, a past in the sex work, um, even so much even though so much of the economy uh, depends on this industry, these women can't find a job anywhere else. They are marked. They are discriminated against. They're seen as the lowest of the low, dirty and unworthy. And, you know, I, I realized on this trip that trafficking is such a broad word. It's a necessary word. It's, it's, it's a true word to describe so much of the horrific things that are going on. And it's a, a necessary word for people to have some basis of understanding this crisis. But something different is going on here than trafficking, both in my experience in India and Thailand. Yes, of course, there, there are women working in Thailand who have literally been trafficked, kidnapped, and taken from their home countries. I saw women from Africa and Russia and, and other countries. But this specifically is what I would call cultural slavery. Women are in this line of work because they feel as if they have no other choice. And poverty's greatest weapon is that it robs people of choices. 
You know, the streets would have completely broken me if it were not for the girls at the safe house, uh, a home literally found in the heart of the sex industry in Bangkok on the doorstep of the red light district. And I found myself sitting around this dinner table filled with girls brimming with pride and hope for the future. They had cooked us a traditional Thai meal. I fell in love with Thai food on this trip. And they told us their dreams. And it was almost like with every glimpse into their bright future, I felt like a piece of my heart was being put back together. They told us that their dreams of going into accounting and food service and HR and culinary school, fashion, these were the dreams that they shared with us. And they were sitting there smiling, happy, safe, and loved. Don't get me wrong, they they each had a past, they each have their own rescue story, and they each know full well the life they could be living and the power of grace in their lives. Neen came to Patia when she was just 17 years old to escape an abusive husband, and she quickly found herself scared and working in a bar. And she didn't have to tell us all the horrible details of the life that she must have led. She simply told us that if she was still there, she would have no hope and no future. At 15, Irina followed her, city, her sister to the big city, and her sister began to teach her how to work in a bar. And the home has given her a chance to go to school, which is something she always wanted to do. But most importantly, it's helped her find God. And as a former Buddhist, she told us something so beautiful. She said, I'm a daughter of the king, and he will love me no matter what. There's something so powerful about hope. I mean, it's as if you can feel it in a room, as if you can almost touch it, taste it, feel it. And you see, I realized that what I had questioned in the dark, on those dark streets, God was proving 10 times over to me in the light that there is always hope. So I'm left with the question of, In the face of such overwhelming need, a problem so big, it simply seems unsolvable. I mean, 9.4 million Western men going there for sex every year and the hundreds and thousands of sex workers. What does God really expect of us? And how much are we willing to invest to save a life? Because this is not a quick fix. Change does not happen overnight. This takes long-term commitment. And in most cases, it requires years of help to really rescue one of these girls. But rescuing just one means ending a cycle for generations to come. Meeting all of their needs comes with a price tag. It's not cheap to help feed and house and educate one of these girls. Education can mean anything from finishing high school to a university education or or vocational school. And on average, it costs about $1,000 a month to care for one of these girls, to house them and feed them and clothe them and send them to school. And we support that home I talked about in Bangkok, and it's perfectly positioned to meet these needs. The girls living here are safe. They receive counseling and education and Most importantly, they hear about a God that loves them and values them and has a much better plan for their life. But we want to help even more girls in Patia 
the birthplace of the sex industry. And providing a new home there is gonna cost around $300,000. These are big needs. But how do you put a price tag on the value of a life? A life forever changed. Generations of life changed. What is the value of a new beginning and a second chance? I have to say that by far the moment that broke me was when I went inside one of these bars, inside a dancing bar. You see, even the bars there have different levels and I was about to experience the worst. And I don't say any of this to be exploitive, um, simply just to tell the truth of what I saw. And while I would not wish this experience on anyone, in some ways I am thankful that I was able to see it firsthand. It was William Wilberforce who once said that you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Now I can never say that I didn't know. I saw it. I know. And there's really no words to describe what I experienced there. What I had seen on the streets did not prepare me at all for what happens behind closed doors. And what shocked me the most was not the graphic nature of the girls dancing, but rather the interaction between the girls and the customers. You see, each girl was numbered. Numbered. Marked like cattle. Men simply call out the number of the girl that they want as if they're being sold to the highest bidder. It was degrading, it was disgusting, I was completely infuriated, and I was surrounded by men, many American, who had no shame in what they were doing. And you know, I think before I went on this trip, I thought, I knew I would see American men, and I thought, you know, they'll be able to tell that I'm American, and surely there'll be some kind of shame in what they're doing. Surely they'll turn their head, try not to make eye contact, or let me see what they're doing. But I never found that. There was no shame in what they were doing. And before you convince yourself that all of these were seedy-looking men, they looked just like your next-door neighbor. They looked like someone you could even go to church with. We estimated that there were at least 200 women in the bar that night. They just kept rotating them out on stage for the pleasure of the audience. It was all I could do to fight back the tears. You see, I had already been to India at this point. I had stayed strong through India. I had held it together on Walking Street. I had held it together at Nana Plaza and walked through the world's largest adult playground. But this, this was too much. And I finally made it out of that bar and into our van waiting close by. And when I got there, I lost it. I mean, I literally lost it. I was sobbing. I sort of felt like that character in the movie, The Green Mile, you know, the guy that, that breathes in everyone else's hurt and pain and suffering. And as if it was as if I had breathed in too much, too much evil, too much pain, and it had to come out. You know, we've all heard that quote that God never gives us more than we can handle. And I started to question that because I believe often he does just that. He gives us way more than we can ever handle on our own. And our partner was sitting right by me, patiently waiting for me to regain my composure. I mean, she does this work day in and day out. She goes into the bars. She talks to the girls. She has seen it all. 
And I asked her, how do you do this every day? How do you do this? And she just quietly and simply said, if we don't, who will? If we don't, who will? I have to admit that I came home from this trip stunned, trying to process all I had seen. And you know, I, I thought I had seen it all. I mean, I've been traveling and doing this work since I was 11 years old, but this trip and what I saw rocked my world. My first Sunday back at church, my pastor was preaching a message and in it, I, I barely remember what the, the context of the sermon was. I just remember him saying the phrase that God is with us in the dark places. And I sat there still reeling from my trip thinking, no, he's not. No, he's not. I have just been to some dark places and I had a hard time finding God there. I had a hard time finding God in that bar. I desperately wanted to find God. I desperately wanted to find answers, peace, some goodness, some light. But it was as if God was absent, as if he was silent. I felt like what I had seen was simply too dirty for God. And I had to process that. I think we're all familiar with sanitizers in our life. I mean, if you're like me and you're a mom, you barely leave the house without some kind of sanitizer. Purell, uh, wipes, sprays, something that just kills the germs and makes you feel clean and not dirty. And uh, I have a, a co-worker here at World Health that I work with, and he has this tradition that whenever he gets on a plane, he likes to sort of sanitize his area. So I believe it was coming home from this trip from Thailand. Uh, he got on the plane, went to his seat, was excited that he got a, a window seat and he could lean up against the wall. So he wiped down the entire wall. He wiped down his armrest. He wiped down, wiped down the back of the chair and, and the, the tray and got everything sanitized only to realize that he had accidentally sat in the wrong seat. His seat was a row back and he had to start the whole process again. <laughs> But we all, like to, we all like to keep things clean. Sanitizer is our friend, right? But what we don't like to admit or acknowledge about sanitizer is that some research shows that it can actually lower your immunity and actually make you more susceptible. In fact, a New York Times article about the pros and cons of hand sanitizer said that if it doesn't contain a high enough percentage of alcohol, then it doesn't kill any bacteria. If anything, the gel just spreads bacteria around instead of killing them. And according to a recent World Health Organization report, our obsession with germ killing has resulted in antibiotic-resistant bacteria in every corner of the globe. So basically, they make us feel clean, but we're not really that clean. And I started thinking about that. I started thinking about how that relates to our faith, to the gospel, and to what I had seen in Thailand. And I realized that it was all me. I was the one that made God disappear. God was not absent. I had just decided that he did not fit there, that he did not belong there in that darkness. 
I had sanitized the gospel. See, I think sometimes that we've sanitized our faith to the point that it makes us feel safe in our world, but it only makes sense in our clean, safe, comfortable world. But how does it hold up in the darkest, dirtiest places of our world? Because we've turned the gospel into something that only meets our needs and fits inside the safety of our homes and churches when it was meant for so much more. See, I had decided that this place was too dark, too dirty, and too vulgar for God. But where was Jesus found in the Bible? Who did he hang out with? And where would he be today, in my world or in that one? Because Jesus didn't avoid the darkness. He invaded it. Jesus did not stay clean. He got his hands dirty. Jesus did not focus on the beautiful. He devoted himself to the unclean, the underdog, and the unworthy. Jesus embraced the darkness. And you see, I believe that God's heart is big enough to handle the most heartbreaking stories. His blood is thick enough to blot out the deepest darkness, and His arms are strong enough to fight the vilest of evils. We can't sanitize our greatest weapon or water down the hope that we've been given. We've been rescued so that we can invade that darkness with light. One of our donors and strongest advocates followed along on this trip, and at the end, she sent me this quote by C.T. Studd, and I just haven't been able to get it out of my head. And it says, Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that is literally the work we are doing in these dark places. But you know that the truth is you don't have to travel halfway around the world to find dark places. There's dark places right in your own neighborhood and in your own community, people in need. And we can't sanitize our faith by avoiding the dark places of our life. Let's allow our faith to do what it was intended to do, to invade the darkness with light. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of work I want to be involved in. That's what I want to invest my life in, providing hope within a yard of hell. Thank you for listening in today. If you have any questions or want more information on what we've discussed on today's episode, or maybe you want to look at some photos or videos of our initiatives in Thailand, you can find all of that on my website at noelleyates.com. You can also follow along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Noel Yates. And until next time, may we all find ourselves awake and doing a world of good.